Well, if you would look with me in Ephesians 2, as we were saying before we were interrupted, in verse 19, the Apostle Paul writes, having reminded us, driven home, that Christ has brought reconciliation, it's definitive, it's been achieved. In verse 18, through him, we both, Jews, Gentiles, or no matter what ethnicity you might be, have access in one spirit to the Father. He says, then, so then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, the saints being not a special class of individual, but those who are in Christ the Holy One. And members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, that is Christ, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we do come to you this morning and can come to you, as Paul reminds us, because we have access in one Spirit by the finished work of Jesus Christ to you, our Father. We thank you for that glorious and gracious privilege. May we, Lord, today as we consider this passage, exult in that privilege evermore. Give us clarity on the text. Give us ears to hear. Give us grace to endure, to listen well, and to steward this time faithfully. We ask this for your son's sake. Amen. In 2005, four Navy SEALs were commissioned to capture and kill a Taliban leader and an associate of Osama bin Laden. And so on June the 27th, 2005, Danny Dietz, Michael Murphy, Matthew Axelson, and Marcus Luttrell roped out of a, a chopper to the mountains of Afghanistan. And as soon as they came down off that rope, they realized they had landed into a perilous situation. They were outnumbered by the Taliban soldiers. Uh, they had no cover, and the terrain was treacherous. Disaster was inevitable. Danny Dietz was the first to die. Murphy at this time already shot in the chest, knew that the only way his two surviving brothers were going to survive would be if headquarters learned of their locale. And so he went out into the open where he could get cell service, and before gunfire, he sat on a rock and he began to dial the numbers to, to headquarters quarters as gunfire rains down on top of him. Marcus could hear him say, 
We're getting picked apart. We need help. And then Mike took another bullet and braced himself and said, Roger that. Thank you, sir. And then he stood and started firing at the enemy until he died. Latrell, in his book, Lone Survivor, says these words later. Murphy walked into the firestorm. His objective was clear, to make one valiant last attempt to save his two teammates. He made the call. Roger that, sir. Thank you. Will those words ever dim in my memory? Even if I live to be a hundred, if they build a memorial to him as high as the Empire State Building, it won't ever be high enough. Well, the point is clear. The glory of this sacrificial act, a heroic act, has forever changed Latrell. It's forever impacted him. And now there's no response in return too costly for him, including building a skyscraper memorial. And we can understand his sentiments, can't we? After all, Murphy laid down his life so that Marcus Luttrell might live. Now, I want you to consider this this week, this beginning of the 2021 year. Do you can recognize, have you considered, that's what the church is. The church is, among other things, a memorial of Christ's sacrificial act, a memorial for what he did to save otherwise hopeless sinners like us. Consider this prophecy from Isaiah 55 where the prophet Isaiah is speaking about the fruit of the triumph of the incarnate word who would come centuries later. Here's what he says. The fruit of that triumph would be instead of the thorn bush, the cypress will come up. And instead of the nettle, the myrtle will come up. This is new creation language. And it will be a memorial to the Lord. Do you see what he's saying? This new creation fruit will be a memorial to the Lord. And in the context, the Lord who is the suffering servant. Now, this new creation memorial is the church. We know that from the progress of history. And as Isaiah 65 verse 18 says, again, in the context of the prophecy of a new creation, the prophet says, be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. In the context, it's recreate, new creation. And the church is the pilot project of the new creation project. We are to rejoice. We are to be glad in, the, in that which God has created through the suffering servant's finished work. 
Now, the emphasis in Ephesians, as we have seen, is the role of Christ's church in God's plan to memorialize, to use Isaiah's language, the finished work of the suffering servant and to sum up all things in Christ, this suffering servant. But in God's wisdom, his purposes for something, and I love this, his purposes for something and our need for that very thing are always inseparable. So he has a great purpose for the church, but we also have a great need for the church. 2020 has taught us that more than ever. We have learned in the year 2020, we need the church more than we ever realized. The very thing that God has established at the instrumental level to restore the world, to restore this broken and fractured world. If this past week taught us anything, politics can't do it. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ can do it. But it's the very nature of our sin condition, yours and mine, in our natural state, not to esteem what God esteems. And that's why we need God's perspective on that which is truly good. And that's why this text is so critical for us today. Today, the Apostle Paul gives us three images of the church to drive home her importance. Because at the natural level, we don't naturally see the importance of the church. He's going to give us three images to drive that home and also to drive home the unity that all believers, no matter our ethnicity, I've been hearing this week about white evangelicals. That's not a biblical term. There is no adjective before Christian. No matter what your ethnicity, we have been reconciled in Jesus Christ for those who believe. And that brings us to the first part of this passage. Through Christ's cross and resurrection... That has been the emphasis of verses 13 to 18. We are now fellow citizens of God's kingdom. Now, this is very important. Again, he's driving home the importance of the church. Why does he need to do that? Because our natural state, we don't see the importance of the church. But again, through Christ's cross and his reconciliation, his resurrection, we are now fellow citizens. Look with me in verse 19. He says, so then... You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. Now, notice the connector there. So then. He is connecting what he is about to say to verses 13 to 18, where Paul repeats the word one. The word one to emphasize the unifying work of Jesus Christ. So notice verse 14. He himself is our peace. All right? So Christ is our peace. How is he our peace? He took the alienation that was ours on the cross. God's wrath was poured out on the Son. That's why he cried out, My God, why have you forsaken me? He was forsaken for us as our substitute. 
He himself is our peace. Notice, who has made us both one. He has made us, that is, Jews and Gentiles and every other ethnicity thrown in, he has made us both one. Notice in verse uh, 15, that he might create in himself, again, that's new creation language, one new man. And then verse 16, might reconcile us both to God in one body. And then in verse 18, through him, that is Christ, we have access in one spirit to the Father. So Paul is saying, in light of that, in light of the reality that alienation and division, which is the fruit of Genesis 3, we are naturally alienated, we are naturally divided, and this past week has exposed that more than any time perhaps in our lifetimes. But now in Jesus Christ, for those who believe, all alienation and division have been overcome by the blood of Christ. Now in the, New Test- the Old Testament, rather, Genesis 10.1, very important verse, Genesis 10.1 teaches us that all the nations descended from three sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. All the nations descend from these three sons. Interestingly, in Acts, so for instance, in Acts 8, a descendant of Ham is saved. An Ethiopian. In Acts 9, a descendant of Shem is saved. Saul of Tarsus, who is, would be converted and named the Apostle Paul. And in Genesis 10, a descendant of Japheth. Descendants of Japheth, Gentiles from Cornelius' household are all saved. Indeed, stranger here, this language of stranger in, in, in verse 19 was used in verse 12 to describe the Gentiles formerly being strangers to the covenant of promise, covenant entrusted to Abraham and his descendants. This language of aliens, aliens in the land, what that conveys is that formerly you did not have the rights and the privileges of citizenship. Citizenship being in the citizenship of the kingdom of God. But now, all believers... All of those who've repented of their sins. Now, faith always accompanies repentance, and repentance always accompanies faith. Those who have repented and trusted in Jesus are now fellow citizens with the saints of the kingdom of God. Now, when Paul wrote this letter, what earthly kingdom reigned? The kingdom of Rome, right? And the kingdom of Rome, Rome looked uh, impenetrable. It had reigned, it had dominated for centuries. 
And it was poised to stand for many more centuries. Paul knew that. In fact, he was a citizen of Rome. But he wasn't impressed. What was important for Paul was this new man, Ephesians 2.15. This new humanity drawn from every tribe and tongue within the empire. From all peoples within the empire. A kingdom like no earthly kingdom that cannot be shaken. A kingdom that cannot be destroyed. Isn't that a good and hopeful and providential and timely word for us this week? When we see earthly kingdoms getting really shaken. We are citizens of a kingdom that cannot be shaken. It cannot be destroyed. Now, if you've ever been an alien in another country for any time, you know how privileged membership is. It's so privileged. In your own country, you have legal protections. You have life advantages that are unique to citizenship. But for non-citizens, the concerns multiply, like whether your, your medical insurance will apply, whether the currency that you have has any spending power, whether, whether you have legal rights if you somehow get into trouble. I've been in a tense situation two different times overseas where I was not a citizen uh, through a, uh, an error I was able to get into Zambia a few years ago without having uh, my yellow fever shot but once I got into Zambia I learned I wasn't leaving Zambia without a yellow fever shot and I had no access to getting one it looked like I was going to become a lifelong alien in Zambia. Long story short, I ended up in a small little hut with a Zambian nurse giving me uh, that shot, and she had a sick sense of humor. Uh, she told me to open up my uh, shirt, and she said the, the needle was this long. <laughs> and she saw me grow faint, and then she started laughing. She said, I'm just kidding. It was a horrible situation. I did not know how I was going to get out of the country. And then a few years ago, I went into Haiti. And because I did not have the specific address of the, de the destination I was going to, uh, the customs officials took up my passport and my suitcase. I was in this airport without a passport and without a suitcase and without a phone number. Uh, those are two different times I have been in a situation where I've come to appreciate the privileges of citizenship. Citizenship means that you have the rights and privileges and protections that come with being a citizen. I want you to think about the uh, officials in Philippi who arrested the Apostle Paul and Silas, and they beat 
the Apostle Paul and Silas, but then were terrified to learn that Paul and Silas were citizens of Rome. Why were they terrified when they learned that information? Because they knew the power of Rome could be exercised against them for mistreating their citizens. Likewise, and this is so important right now, when chaos seems to be reigning, you as a believer in Jesus Christ, we as believers in Christ have the power, the privileges, and the protections that come with being citizens of the kingdom of God. That is our hope right now. That is our hope, and it is a sure hope. It is a sure foundation. Do you know, as I've cried out for my mother, for the last two weeks, I've come to him confessing, I'm a citizen of your kingdom. I have privileges that come with being a citizen of your kingdom. You're the king. You're sovereign. You rule. And I have privileges because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. Don't overlook this glorious truth the Apostle Paul is driving home in this passage. But with privileges come responsibilities. We have responsibilities that come with being citizens in the kingdom. All right? What are the responsibilities? We could talk a whole lot about that. Ephesians 4 to 6 will focus on that, by the way. Let me just give you three overarching responsibilities. First of all, we have a responsibility to, to be sound in the theology and the doctrine and the truths of the kingdom. We are to contend earnestly for the faith. That's one of our responsibilities. We do not have any kind of autonomy to change or conform the word to our taste. This is a kingdom document, and we are to be people of the truth. Secondly, we are to be people of holiness. Paul has already written in Ephesians 1, he chose us in him to be holy and blameless in his sight. As citizens of the kingdom, we are representing the rule and the reign of Jesus Christ the King to the non-citizens. And so we are to be sound in our theology and doctrine. We're to stand on the promises of the Word of God and the truths of the Word of God. We're all to walk in holiness. We're to be holy in our conduct, in our words, in how we interact with one another on social media. And then thirdly, we are responsible to be known for our love. You know, when Jesus was speaking to his disciples before he went to the cross, he said to love one another, and he promised that this would be the identification marker to the world. He says in John 13, this will be how they will know that you're my disciples. Because you are so loving, countercultural, sacrificial loving. You know, Christians are commanded 17 times 
in the New Testament to love one another. And, and the record of church history indicates that early on, a widespread obedience to that command was seen in the early church. By the late 2nd century, Tertullian, one of the church fathers, could claim that even the opponents of Christianity noted this, saying, see how they love one another. The pagans were noticing. See how they love one another. Could, could the world say that about Fisherville? See how they love one another. Could they say that about the American church? Michael Green, in his book, Evangelism, in the early church, a remarkable work, says that the love of Christians for one another astonished the pagans. Astonished. That's the phrase he used. Astonished the pagans and was the large factor in their evangelistic success. And so we have great privileges of citizenship. Don't overlook that when you come to the, the king of this kingdom. But you also have a responsibility. Sound doctrine, holiness, and love are the responsibilities of citizenship. Well, the second metaphor Paul's going to drive home here, we see in verse 19, the, the last part of 19, through Christ's cross and resurrection, we are now family members of God's household. I love that. Notice in the last part of verse 19, we're fellow citizens with the saints, yes, and members of the household of God. Now to see how beautiful this word is, Paul uses that very word, household, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8, to refer to actual family members, your blood family, okay? So he's using the same term to refer to those who have been related to one another by the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know that the New Testament describes us as brothers and sisters over 200 times. God is called Father, and we even see it here in verse 18, over 250 times in the New Testament. It's a glorious word, a glorious term to describe our God for those who are in his family. And when you add up the fact that the church is called the household of God, that we are called brothers and sisters over 200 times, and God is called Father over 250 times, then the conclusion is that family is the most significant metaphor for the church in the New Testament. Family. And, and, and crucial implications stem from that. Massive implications that we could speak about for, for some time. But let me give you just a couple. First of all, it speaks to the depth of the relationship that church members, that is those in Christ, have with the God who created the heavens and the earth. Don't overlook that. 
You see, to become a member of any family, you either have to be born into that family or you have to be adopted into that family. The New Testament uses both to describe our entry into this family. We're born again into this family, right? And we are adopted into this family. He wants us. You see? He cares for us. In other words, our Heavenly Father receives us as children and has taken on the responsibility of fatherhood. Again, as I've come to Him this week, I've come to Him as the citizen of His kingdom. He's taken on responsibility for the kingdom and the welfare of His subjects. I've come to Him as a citizen, but I've also come to Him as a son. I've come to him as my father. And so what glorious privilege we have to be citizens, but also sons and daughters. John 1, 12, yet to all who receive him, to those who believe in Christ's name, God gives us the rights to become the children of God. Glorious rights, glorious privileges. Second implication here, seeing fellow church members, not as foes, she doesn't think the way I do. He doesn't do things the way I would do them. Instead of seeing each other that way, but as seeing each other as brothers and sisters would deeply impact the relationship that we have with one another. Absolutely. I've got a blood brother. Ain't nothing getting in the way of that relationship. If he ticks me off, he's still my brother. And I'm still committed to him. It would force us, compel us maybe better, to work out our differences we would stay, we'd embrace the pain, and we would grow up together. We would grow up with one another. You know, that's a church that'll change the world. That, that's a church that will change the world, that kind of church. See how they love one another. That brings us to the third and final metaphor here. That we see here in verse, starting in verse 20 to the end of 22... Through Christ's death and resurrection, again, all of this comes through the shed blood of Jesus and his resurrection from the grave. Through Christ's death and resurrection, we are now stones in the spiritual temple. Peter calls it living stones. I love that. 1 Peter 2, 5 and 6. Look with me in verse 20. So we're citizens with the saints, members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. There's at least least six traits in this passage that drive home what this spiritual temple is about. All of them are important. First of all, 
God is the one building it. Isn't that comforting? It's not being built by my leadership. This thing would have been destroyed all a long time ago. God is the one building it. Notice, it is built. It's passive. Verse 22, we are being built. God is the one who's building this temple. Thank you, Lord, that you're the one in charge of this building project. That's very hopeful. Because if God's the one building it, there is no force in this world that can stop it. Even if a president were to issue an edict that makes worshiping the living Christ by the word of God a hateful act, nothing can stop the sovereign, omnipotent God from building his temple. Rest in that. Hope in that. Renew your mind in that when you get anxious or discouraged. Second, it's built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Now, a lot has been, ink has been spilled on who the prophets are there. You could say it's the Old Testament prophets. <clears throat> but there was a class of New Testament prophets during the apostolic era who died out with the apostles. Uh, any kind of prophecy today is just a, a, a foretelling of what's already been entrusted. The 66 book canon, there's no new word from God today. We don't need a new word. In these last days, he has spoken to us in his son. We have 66 books of the canon that will keep us busy for a thousand lifetimes times a thousand. And this temple is built. Now listen. As long as this church continues to build on the foundation entrusted to us by the apostles and prophets, nothing to worry about. God's the one doing the building, and it's built on this sure foundation, right? Third, Jesus is the cornerstone of this spiritual temple. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. That term is only used one other place in New Testament. That's 1 Peter 2, 6, where Peter is musing upon the same realities. He calls us living stones. Jesus is the chief cornerstone. That is a fulfillment of a prophecy that goes all the way back to Isaiah 28, 16. I am the one, Yahweh says, who has laid as a foundation in Zion... A, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. Paul says the fulfillment of that prophecy is in Jesus Christ. This is a sure and tested stone. And just as a building depends both for its structure and expansion on being tied securely to its cornerstone. So Jesus Christ, as he's revealed in the scriptures, there's a whole lot of people today who pontificate about who their Jesus is. It's the Jesus as revealed in the scriptures. He is indispensable to a church's unity and a church's true growth. And unless that church 
is securely united to this cornerstone, its unity will disintegrate and its growth will be stunted. But as long as a church is securely united to the cornerstone and building on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, I don't care what they say on the news. We have a sure hope and a sure foundation. Notice in verse 21, we see the fourth reality of this spiritual temple. In verse 21, he says, In whom, that is Christ, the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. That is, only those who are united to Christ by faith. You have to trust in Christ. You have to come to the place where you say, I am a sinner. I deserve judgment. My sin is not inherently forgivable. If I'm to be forgiven, it's because God pours out his mercy on me through the substitutionary work of his son. And I am now confessing my sin and I am trusting in Jesus. I am committing to Jesus alone for my salvation. By grace through faith, you are united to Jesus Christ. And only those, only those who are united to Christ by faith make up the stones of this temple. In other words, if you're not a true converted believer, you are not a part of this spiritual temple. Both verses 21 and 22 begin with the phrase, notice, in him, in whom, verse 21, and in him, verse 22. This joins us together. That's why unity is so important for true believers. Because when we are united to Christ, we are united to each other. And so division communicates. Listen, division in a church communicates. Jesus isn't enough to unite us. That's a horrible false witness. We are united to him. And notice he says, the whole structure is joined together. Because you're united to the same cornerstone. It's a very important truth to us here. In fact, notice the root, this Greek word here for joined together. You can write this down if you like. It's the Greek word harmozo. H-A-R-M-O-Z-O. Joined together, harmozo. The word where we get the word harmonize. Harmozo. Harmonize. It, it, it speaks of the care in which the mason fits together the stones in the building. And there's great implication there. That means that the mason, who is God in Christ, has fit us together with care. As living stones united to the chief cornerstone, the brothers and sisters around me are around me by divine design. I don't get to pick and choose who my brothers and sisters are. It's God who's done this. He's the mason. Now, as Paul wrote Ephesians, keep in mind, there were two temples in this culture. 
First of all, there was the temple of Diana, or Artemis. It was a pagan temple. It was one of the seven wonders of the world. And it was believed that her presence resided there. But in Jerusalem, there stood the Jewish temple. And so two temples, one was pagan, outright pagan, and the other very religious, each designed by the devotees as a divine residence. But both temples were empty of the living God. But now there's a new temple. You realize that's who we are? We're stones of a temple. There's a new temple, his redeemed people, scattered throughout the world, his home on earth, expressed though locally. That brings us to the fifth point about this spiritual temple. This temple is not complete but is currently under construction and growing. Again, notice, it grows. It's not stagnant. And the reason it's not stagnant is God's one building it. Okay, so it grows into a holy temple. Now, don't overlook that language. Qualitative and quantitative growth are inferred there. doesn't mean that every single local church will grow. There are many factors involved. Maybe you're in a community where the community is dying out. But the universal church is going to grow. All right? Now, the Lord uses means, and we'll talk about that. But there is qualitative growth and quantitative growth here inferred. Why do I say qualitative? Notice it says it grows into a holy temple. So we are set apart, sanctified in Christ's saints, We are declared holy in his sight, and yet we are growing in holiness. One of the great evidences that we have been united to Christ and our saints is that we are growing in holiness. This temple is growing, and so there's a corporate growth in holiness. But it's growing in numbers as well. It's increasing. Um, Remember uh, the book of Acts. I love the book of Acts. Seven times, and I think it's intentional, seven times, sometimes the number seven in Scripture speaks about completion, perfection. Seven times in the book of Acts, it says that the disciples increased. As the word was going forth from Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, the word was increasing, and seven times in the book of Acts, it says the disciples increased. Why? Because God is building his temple. Remember uh, Ephesians 1.23, though. This is very important to this. Verse 23 says, The church is his body, that is Christ, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So here's how it works. Christ fills his temple by his spirit. And then as this temple grows, the presence of Christ is extended to the ends of the earth. The presence of Christ, the rule of Christ is extended. And that dovetails into the the final trait of this temple that we see in verse 22. In him, that is Christ, you also are being built together. Notice, 
this is corporate. No long ranger Christian. Listen, there are Christians today, it is a wise thing for them not to be in, the, in, in a local assembly. I've seen firsthand the devastation of what this pandemic can do to particular individuals, okay? But in a normal situation, this is a corporate reality. In him, you also are being built together. We are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So the final trait of this temple is God's dwelling place. Wouldn't that inform how we relate to one another? Or even how we approach corporate worship? If we saw this as God's dwelling place, even in all its imperfections, it's God's dwelling place. In verse 21, Paul used the term for temple. He used the Greek word naos. That was the term that was used for the holy of holies. We're the holy of holies. It's just remarkable. We're where God dwells. It's the local church. And this drives home the importance of Christ's church. You see, it is God's memorial for the finished work of Jesus. It's also the instrumental means. The church is the instrumental means. God's the builder, not us, but he uses human means, right? We learned that in Genesis 1. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. It's happening in the church. It's the instrumental means by which God brings Jesus the King, Jesus the Savior, to the world. Now, when a church turns on itself, you lose that mission. But this is the instrumental means. The church's mission is as an expanding temple. You ever thought about that? Our mission is as an expanding temple to extend the presence of God in Jesus Christ to the world through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So as we begin this new year, <coughs> and while recognizing there are some who make, are making wise decisions not to be here for their physical well-being for a time, the question we need to ask ourselves is your commitment to Christ's church consistent with Paul's understanding of its importance? Paul is communicating some really important words here about the importance of Christ's church. Is your commitment to the church consistent with the importance of the Apostle Paul places on the church. And for those of you who, who have not yet believed, and that was me prior to 1991, it's every person in here prior to their conversion. The question is, are you a member of the church, true church? You can be. By repenting of your sin, laying it down at the cross, Trusting in Jesus Christ alone and his death on the cross, his resurrection from the grave for your salvation. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage. We tend to not esteem the things you esteem. And yet through the apostles' writings this morning, we see we are introduced anew to the importance of the church. 
which was purchased by the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. We begin this year, may each believer here recommit to the health, the vitality of Christ's bride. And if there's any here today, Lord, that have never trusted in Jesus, I pray they would be compelled to trust him today. And if they have questions about that, that they would feel comfortable coming to see me and asking me any questions that they might have about the gospel. We ask these things today. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, amen.